Welcome to Living Southern Oregon, a podcast dedicated to discovering and exploring all Southern Oregon has to offer. I'm your host, Simona Fino, and I will be introducing you to the people who live here, the things they love, and what makes Southern Oregon a magical place to call home. Hello, everyone. We are here again with another episode, and today I want to introduce you all to Conrad Rodmans. He is the director and lead instructor of House Alive Natural Building. He was born and raised in the Netherlands and then moved to the United States in 1986 and then to Southern Oregon in 1997. He took his first Cobb workshop in 1998 and has been building and teaching ever since. Other than building things, he also makes music and likes to perform at wineries, cafes, and restaurants. Welcome, Conrad. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad you're here. So, Netherlands, that's a long way to come. <laughs> so, how did you uh, first come to live in the United States and, and then finally Oregon? Well, after I graduated from college in the Netherlands as a teacher, there were no jobs at all. And I, in the Netherlands, now there's a huge shortage of teachers, by the way. And so I, I got an opportunity to work as a, a camp counselor in Southern California. And it was not just a summer camp job, but it was also a year-round job for um, teaching environmental education and running a conference center at an Episcopal camp outside of San Diego. I liked it so much there, and I liked to work so much, working with the children and, and living in the woods, and I just stayed longer, and I ended up working there, I think, for like six or seven years. And in the meantime, I did some uh, workshops and courses, and I became a program director and a system director and certified camp director. And I ended up switching jobs, and, and in the meantime, I got my green card. And I took a couple of different jobs, kind of slowly migrating north, until I ended up at Camp Latgawa. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I am. It's out by Lake Creek. Yes. Beautiful little place, and we just kind of ran it as a mom-and-pop store. We had people using the facilities, and the, that was owned by the Methodist Church, so they would come by for summer camp. And that's where I came across natural building and earthen construction, because I was able to get a group called the Natural Builders to come and use my facilities. I got them over there, and they, they came for like 10 days. And throughout the week, they were going through my trash piles and digging up clay, building these amazing things out of seemingly nothing. Like, I didn't have to buy anything. And every now and then, they would come in the kitchen where I was cooking and say, Hey, Conrad, can we use this or can we use that? And that was usually stuff I either didn't care for or was about to throw away. And they built uh, courtyards and... Uh, sitting places and a uh, clay oven and rock walls and I immediately beautified the camp enormously and I was just stunned not only by that, that that style of building but also by the spirit of the community of these people and the environmental benignness of of their style of building. Yeah, I, I was just hooked because I liked the build. Mm -hmm. I always felt like doing the work with the children in the camps, I was doing faux things. It was kind of an artificial situation, and we'd try to have the kids get along, and 
and be kind to one another and, and be creative and everything. But with this building, I felt like it was essentially the same work, but doing real things with people, like building beauty or uh, you know, courtyards or houses, cabins, cottages. And so, yeah, I, I, took a, I took a workshop and helped the people out for a couple of times. And then at some point I was like, you know, I think I can do this, even though I couldn't do it yet at that time. And <laughs> 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 I kind of muscled, you know, everybody has to somewhere and say, I got to make a yeah. jump, right, yeah. from one to the other. And of course, that jump is a little uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> but after, you know, a year or two, I, I was more solidly in my shoes, in my building shoes. And then the rest is kind of history. So I've been doing that uh, over the last 20 years in... Sometimes, I would say about half the time in Southern Oregon, in different forms, on my own land, building cottages and, and garden malls and courtyards. And then also on other people's properties, like in Talent or in the Applegate. I've done a project in White City. Some in Medford. I worked with a school district a little bit in Rouge. Yeah, so there's like little places around the valley that I've built. And then the other segment of my work has been uh, traveling and going primarily to poorer countries where this form of building is still either actively present or, or practiced or is slowly disappearing because of the, I'm not sure if the advance is the right word, but the, the aggressive presence of concrete, <laughs> you know, in places like Mexico and India and uh, I've built in Kenya. I also done a few workshops in Europe, mainly in Italy and Spain. If you look at that, all those little different packages, then you can also understand the different reasons why people go to this style of building. Mm -hmm. And so in Europe, it's often the, the cost of building has become so high there that people are looking for alternatives. And as your wall systems are essentially built out of clay and straw and sand, it's relatively inexpensive in terms of materials and maybe more expensive in terms of labor. But if you do the work yourself, you know, you have an opportunity to do it in your hours that you're not working, mm -hmm. the cost would be lower. As I said, like in India or Kenya or other places, it's really about cost and also about comfort because I'm not sure if you've traveled in really hot countries, mm -hmm. but a concrete block house is horrible. Like it heats up so much and without any air conditioning, yeah. uh, ways to cool it, they become horrible hot boxes while earthen buildings tend to stay much cooler and more pleasant in those yeah. climates. And again, a block of concrete is, is a little investment for somebody that lives on a couple of dollars a day. Living with earthen buildings would make a lot more sense, but they haven't made the step from what we view as mud huts to nicely finished earthen houses. Yeah. And that's kind of where the United States comes in. Right. Like, especially okay. in Oregon, yeah. uh, there have been people who have been uh, the trendsetters in making small, well-built cottages that are beautifully finished. Mm -hmm. You know, the walls don't dust and it's very smooth, like, uh, they're not quite like drywall, but it, it, it looks very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do in poorer countries. We say, okay, you can build uh, you can take your mud hut or your earthen construction and put in a few more windows and a door and put a beautiful finish on it. 
And now you have a house that's much more desirable than a, than a yeah. concrete block house. Yeah. And you're already, your family or your uncle or somebody still knows how to do this. Mm-hmm. That is what's so good about working in those countries. And I'm guessing then that most of those materials are found right there or nearby. Or tell me a little bit about the different materials because you're talking about different countries with different yeah. terrain. Where are those materials coming from? So the three main materials for, for both the, 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 the structure of the walls as well as the finished plaster and the floor are um, sand, straw, and clay. Clay is almost everywhere. Like I've never been to a place where there was no clay. Mm-hmm. Like everywhere I go to build, I often ask them to send me a little sample beforehand of their soil mm-hmm. or to, to find clay somewhere in their area, and you'll find it everywhere. And if you don't find it very on the place itself, you usually can find it nearby. So that makes it, as a building material, very special because anywhere from desert places to the jungle to really cold climates, like I built a house on the reservation in South Dakota, almost everywhere you find clay. Mm-hmm. But that was, I mean, like, for example, in South Dakota, that was a good example where I couldn't find any clay on the side. But uh, a couple of miles away from there, there was clay. There was a big clay vein that we could get the clay from. We used that. Sand is also very prominent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially the yeah. hotter. And to some degree, we benefit slightly from the concrete industry that way. Because everywhere where there's concrete, there's sand. Because sand is the main ingredient mm-hmm. for concrete, or one of the main ingredients. But either way, you find sand. And often, like where I live, there's sand in the soil, too. There's places in Williams and probably other places on that side of our valley, too, where um, the soil itself is a perfect combination of sand and clay. So you only just have to literally dig up your soil, add some straw to it and water, and then you have uh, the perfect building material. And so it's those three main... Yeah, and then straw is essentially a fiber that we use. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we use straw, because it's so abundant here and cheap. We've also built with coconut husks or corn husks or pine needles. What else? They're, they're, they're anything that's long and fibrous, you can build with. Okay. It's really hard to beat the convenience and availability of straw mm-hmm. in this part of the country. But in southern Mexico, which is not a grain-growing region... There's a lot more corn, so there we use corn husks, and that works fine, too. Yeah, so that that's uh, interesting to hear all the different, like it's the same, but different. You've got these same base, but you can tweak it just a little bit to be able to get this final product. And are you using equal amounts, or is it kind of a formula that you use to for that well, blend? Uh- yeah, that, that that's a really interesting question, and that, it, it, there's no formula. Okay. And yeah, and that's and that's why people take a workshop sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> because you learn to identify what how much clay is in the uh, in the soil, or with with what mixture you can build and whatnot. And so you look at your local soil and you try to identify how much clay is in there. And there's different, really simple techniques for that. And then you add straw and sand to it to make it into a good mix. And so the, uh, one of the key differences between this style of building and conventional construction is 
that you have to figure it out. You can't go to Home Depot <laughs> <laughs> and get a perfect mix. Although I predict at some point, at some point in time, uh, Home Depot will carry these mixes, and then mm-hmm. and then the cost of putting those buildings up will go up again. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're going to have to go through a little bit. You know, get it. It's almost through the code now, and and then uh, yeah, at some point, if it ever would become popular, I, yeah. I don't think it will, but. Um, as soon as soon as Home Depot or Lowe's sees an opportunity, <laughs> right? And they see they can make a lot of money off of it. Yeah, so yeah, like, because they sell bags of play sands now, or all kinds of you know yeah. dry materials in large bags, or those big totes yeah. you know you can put in the back of a truck. <laughs> but we're not quite there yet. And actually, the, the 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 beauty of it is that with a with a tiny bit of knowledge, you can locally find the materials that you need to build a house. Or at least the, the wall systems. Mm-hmm. A roof is kind of a different story. And what, what that does is it makes it makes it not only affordable, but also makes it so that people have will have will be more challenged to carefully mine the materials that they're using. Mm. You know, because it's it's on their own land or in their mm-hmm. own neighborhood. Maybe somebody decides to build a house, but then they say, Oh, I'd like to have a little pond with my house too. And so the, where you get the clay you dig a hole and it becomes a little pond oh, okay. uh, for your, your, or maybe in just flattening out a building site, people often get enough material to build that, the house. Um, okay. as I, I had that experience in Mexico once wow. where a big machine cleared a flat spot in a, in a hillside and the mountain of dirt that was left over, we just added water and there we used kind of wild grasses basically. And build a beautiful build little it. house out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I love so, 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 yeah, the, the Home Depot thing might happen, but that's not what it's about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I like that idea of, yeah, you're, you're probably going to be more considerate and more thoughtful with the use of those materials that they're coming from your yard, your property, your space, yeah. or even nearby. So you were just saying something about the roof, and I'm also kind of, now it's making me think of the floor. So I know I've, I've seen earth and construction, but I actually haven't delved too deep into, yeah, the, the overall building of a home like that or dwelling. Mm-hmm. What are you using for roof and flooring? Is that yeah? So uh, starting with the floor, what, one of the unique aspects of these buildings compared to conventional buildings is they're extremely heavy. You know, they weigh tens of thousands of pounds because the walls tend to be a foot and a half thick and it's it's very heavy material. And so the buildings, by and large, have to stand on the ground. They cannot float, you know, 20 inches above the ground like a lot of modern houses mm-hmm. are. And it has a lot of advantages once it's built which is that, you know, you don't have a raccoon habitat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have any moisture problems underneath that space, you know, no mold uh-huh. or stuff starting to grow. And you have uh, contact with the earth, which in its most practical form gives you a, a large, what we call a thermal battery. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, it makes it so that the temperature inside the house doesn't fluctuate so much. And just as the walls also are part of that thermal battery, if conventional buildings, and some are, you know, through a concrete slab, 
if they're built on the earth, that has some thermal advantages. The house tends to be more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And we use, uh, for, for natural building, we tend to just use what we call rubble. We start with putting six inches of rubble on the earth, and then we put a vapor barrier, like a piece of plastic, mm-hmm. a tarp, something like that, on top of that. And on top of that, we then build uh, what's called a tamped floor. It's kind of the same materials, but a little rougher. It's instead of just sand and clay, we use gravel and clay. Mm. And we make that slightly wet and we tamp it, and that becomes a really hard sort of subfloor. People would know it if you look at gravel roads, the way they build gravel roads. It's the same stuff. It's sand and rocks mm-hmm. and clay, and they, you know, they pour water over it, and they drive heavy stuff over it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a really hard road and a very durable road. So you can imagine they built those roads to drive lumber trucks over or, or vehicles. Mm-hmm. So for a house, it works perfectly to do that. Yeah. So now you have a 10 floor, and then on top of that, we take uh, three-quarter inches of a really fine material, again, also sand and clay, and uh, again, a little bit of straw, and we pour a three-quarter inch layer of finished floor. And that, and here comes one of the things that are really essential, and uh, one of the big improvements we've made, is that we stabilize that floor with linseed oil. So when you say stabilize, stabilize it how? Like we, we actually, uh, just like you would uh, rub furniture with linseed okay. oil. Yeah. yeah. We rub okay. the floor with linseed oil. All right. And it soaks and in about a quarter inch. And that's on that gravelly... On the last on, layer. On the last layer. Yeah. Okay. And that last layer is very smooth. People sometimes yes. confuse it for a concrete floor. Okay. But it's much warmer and softer than a concrete. It almost feels like leather. Ah. It's a very beautiful floor. It's very comfortable uh, walking barefoot on. It doesn't hurt your knees or your hips, you know, when you stand on it for too long, like in the kitchen or something. Yeah. And uh, it's it's easy to maintain. You can wet mop it, and, and it's often it's black, mostly. You can you can you can play with the colors a little bit, but the standard floor tends to be black, so it soaks up the sun nicely. If you're in the winter time, you know, if you have south facing windows, so that's the floor. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a long story. I'll give, yeah, you, a yeah, whole, no, <laughs> I'll give you a whole course. Yeah, it's so yeah, super so interesting yeah. because it's so different, right? I mean, I, I go into a ton of houses. I, yeah, I yeah. don't get to see this kind of construction. <laughs> <laughs> a home inspector yeah. would be delighted to not have to go into a crawl space. I know. <laughs> I know. Everybody. Everybody's delighted to not yeah. have to go That's into That's the other advantage. You don't have any freezing problems underneath the house. Yeah, so then wear pipes and... Yeah, you can lead them uh, through the tent floor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Especially now with the availability of uh, PEX tubing, uh-huh. which is very flexible. And, uh, okay. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put mm-hmm. copper there. I, I did it in my house, but with PEX, it's, things are so mm-hmm. simple. And uh, the only thing we tell people not to put connections in the floor. Mm-hmm. So you have your, your PEX pipe basically curve up out of the tan floor, and then you start making your connections or diversions, maybe. Right. Yeah, the roofing is more complex, I think. Uh, it's more complicated, and we tend to resort mostly to conventional-style roofing, uh, especially in the United States. Now, there's places that I've used what we call small di- diameter round wood, you know, little mm-hmm. poles out of the forest that you harvest sustainably. Mm-hmm. It might be like four or five or six inches in diameter. We've used straw for insulation. 
you know, often we coat it with, uh, uh, again, with clay, mm-hmm. which has two advantages. One is it doesn't it doesn't burn as easily. It's kind of a fire protector. Mm-hmm. And also rodents don't like it. Because mm-hmm. they find clay, uh, imagine chewing on clay. Yeah. It's, uh, they, they don't like that. <laughs> like peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that may be worse. No, it's worse. It's worse yeah, yeah. You're getting a hand of sand. A handful yeah. of sand in your mouth yeah. to them, and they don't like that. So, so there are some things we do. The classic natural building roof is a thatched roof. And, you know, where you yeah. use like uh, reeds or mm-hmm. uh, uh, stalks of grain to to make a roof that's both waterproof and insulative. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of a whole new, it's a whole different ball of wax, and it takes a lot of time to learn. And getting the right resources is, is difficult. So in my workshops and, my, and often in my work, I tend to resort to the simplest way, which is actually a living roof. Oh. Where you build some structure, and it could be a shed roof or a gable roof or a flat roof, and you put a pond liner over the whole thing. And then uh, you, you just put bark and dirt and other stuff on top of there to 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 make it look pretty and uh and to and to keep the pond line out of the sun mm-hmm. and now you have a roof that's a hundred percent as long as you keep it covered it will last a thousand years and so do the buildings by the way that's the other mm-hmm. cool thing about them compared to conventional building and, and so well, that's that's the cheapest easiest way yeah. to do a roof and and what kind of maintenance is required? Because you're saying like they last a long time. Yeah, like, I just picture like you know yeah. if you've got deferred maintenance on a house, it's just gonna slowly. Yeah. What kind of maintenance do you have to do on? Almost carpet? nothing. Yeah. Wow. Now if you bump, let's say you bump in the wall, like sometimes even with drywall, you know, yeah. let's say you, you walk yeah. in with something heavy and you bump yeah. into it, there's a nick in it. You know, with drywall, you get some fix-all and, mm-hmm. you know, sand and everything. It's kind of the same with earth. You know, you can redo the plaster a little bit. and But other than that, there's, there's, there's no maintenance. I mean, the, the way to look at it, too, is that you can split building materials up in biological materials, which is our houses are mostly made of, mm-hmm. like wood and a lot of petrochemical materials, and geological materials. And if you look at a biological material... Nature will look at that and say, I want that back, right? <laughs> so they send in raccoons and mice and rats and mold and fungi and all these natural things will try to attack your house. And so what we do in modern construction, we use paints and oils and varnishes and chemicals to keep that stuff out of the house. But inevitably, they'll win. <laughs> <laughs> There's that thing that Mother Nature bats yeah. last. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, go, I can go to any house that's 15 years or older and break open the bathroom wall yeah. and behind it there'll be mold. Because that's what nature is good at, is making things ready, available again for nature. And uh, cop houses don't have that as much because it's all earth and, and uh, sand mm-hmm. can last or stay in the same condition for... Yeah, for a thousand years. The oldest and interesting, I always love this fact, is that the oldest continuously inhabited houses in the United States are, is the Pueblo in uh, mm-hmm. Taos, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So they're a thousand years old. And they've been there 
Yeah, ever since then. I'm sure they had some maintenance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Up a little, though. Yeah. The average house in the United States is the last 29 years. Is that so? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and it's not always, they, they, they don't always um, get taken down because they need to be taken down. Sometimes it's because of the real estate market. You know, it makes more sense to build a bigger house right. in a gentrified yeah. area. And, and, and sometimes it's also not because the structure is so bad, but everything inside the house is bad. Mm-hmm. So it becomes, you know, if you have to replace all the drywall and all the appliances and all the mm-hmm. light fixtures and everything, because yeah, it's, it's a, this little dump from the sixties, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, the two by six, the two by sixes inside the wall are still totally fine uh-huh. and the house will not collapse. But because of the way we build houses, it's easier to take it down. And to redo everything. Yeah. And so, so there are some reasons. And obviously also we have a lot of uh, mobile homes and, and double wise that were built poorly. But still, 29 years is a horrific Compared <laughs> to, to the next Compared to a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I think, and, and that, that kind of, not just environmentally, but also economically and for our health and all kinds of things. I think it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. To to start to move towards uh, earth and construction, and maybe last but not least, in our climate now, in our situation, these houses don't burn down. Mm-hmm. Only the roofs Which is burn super down. Super important. And so, and and they stay very cool, as we live in a climate that doesn't have brutal winters, but have can get very hot in the summer, extremely mm-hmm. hot, and have a constant threat of fire. This is a prime area. For yeah. this building, one of the reasons why it's not happening is because the regulatory systems are not so in favor of us. Yeah, and the reason why that is because it's almost impossible to engineer buildings the way I build buildings or the way I teach people how to build buildings because I use a local clay soil. I make material out of that, and that gets hard when it dries out. And I don't know what the compressive strength of that is, or I don't know, I don't know how that material will act in an earthquake. I can test one building, but as soon as my neighbor builds another building with his soil in a different size and a different height okay. and with different curves in the building, maybe, or then he will, he will need to re-engineer the whole thing again. It would be impossible for an engineer yeah. to do that. And for better or for worse, we have a standard in most places, in the most populated places in the United States and Europe, mm-hmm. that an engineer needs to be able to make sense out of it. Mm-hmm. Even though I think they would do fine you know, with a few standard, standardized, you know, if the walls are a foot and a half thick and with a few simple tests, you could, you could build here and be fine. And especially don't do two-story buildings, maybe just keep it you know, simple. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes what people do is they do a one-story building out of earth and then do a wooden structure on top. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that way it's also less top-heavy. Yeah. It's easy to mix and match. You, know, you can do you can do whatever you want to <laughs> <laughs> with it. And so there are some structures here, I know. How do those get through all of those regulations and whatnot, or are they yeah. considered like if somebody wanted to do that style of building, 
on their property, would it be impossible or? No, no, it's not. But it is complicated. So far, uh, which is sort of, uh, I guess, a, a cousin of uh, of earthen construction is straw bale construction, mm -hmm. and they're they're the ones that have done it a lot through the regulatory system. But essentially, you first have to build a house with studs or wood or something that where an engineer can say, okay, that's good. And then you fill it in with straw bales. Yeah. And I actually did that with uh, one of the houses on my place. Yeah. And that's not that complicated. That, and and enough people have done that. And you could do that with earthen construction too. That would be possible. And right now, there's actually has been a group in the Bay Area that has been uh, writing a, a cop code oh, for the new yeah. building code. Okay. Yeah. And I think in next year, it will be in there. And uh, it doesn't mean that you can do it everywhere, but it might end up being possible in some areas. It seems like a step in the right direction. You know, at least there's movement towards... Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's a complicated... You're... you're um, you're talking to somebody who's a little cynical. <laughs> right. Okay, the teeniest, tiniest step. <laughs> well, part of You've the problem... You've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> well, it's a little bit of a hinge point, as it has been for many other forms of what we call natural building, such as earth bed construction, light straw clay construction, or rent earth. There's, there's many forms. And a lot of them have been successful in getting it through the code. But with that, the complexity, the size, the cost of the building went astronomically, became astro astronomically, it went up so much that the original intent of this, this uh, sort of uh, alternative building was defeated. If, do you understand yes. the concept? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's so supposed it was, to be a low cost, simple uh, resources DIY. right there. Yeah. DIY, yeah, as opposed it's, to yeah. So a lot, a lot of straw bale buildings are very complex now, and they have all kinds of layers of uh, plastic and wood and and metal bracing and and uh, you know, and I'm not against it. And they make beautiful homes, and they're well insulated. But I think the uh, for me. In, in, in my building and teaching practices, it goes much deeper than that. It's not just about having a well-insulated house or even a beautiful house, but really the, yeah, sort of the human right to shelter ourselves. Mm -hmm. It would be the same thing as if you had to get a permit to grow tomatoes in your front yard. Yeah. You know, you, we should be able to shelter ourselves. And I understand there's, there, we live in a, on a planet with a lot of people and, you know, and, and we have to think about that we don't shit in a river or that we, that we are careful with electricity and so forth. But, but just to build a little, just to live in a little shelter should be, yeah. it should be legal somehow. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will be willing to do that. It's one of the ironic things in Portland as soon as the mayor said, now, now it's okay to camp on the streets. A lot of people started doing that because they felt like that was the only way they could afford to live in Portland. You know, the, 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 the big influx of, yeah. of people living in the street uh, was in part caused by them saying, we're not going to prosecute it anymore. You know, you're not a criminal when you, mm -hmm. when you have no place to live. 
And to some degree, even though I'm, I'm not saying I'm not advocating for that policy per se, but the idea that you should be allowed to house yourself however you want mm-hmm. to, yeah. I think is, uh, is part of that movement mm-hmm. of natural building and, and, uh, yeah. and earth and construction. Yeah, and it's a long answer to the question. <laughs> Is that going to be a small step? It might be a small step, but it might be a small step in the wrong direction. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. Now that you put it that way. Yeah. yeah. But maybe a small step in the different It is a, a human right to have shelter. And if that's a type of shelter that is more available um, to someone, yeah. And there are attempts being made, and, and, or, and for example, the tiny house movement is a mm-hmm. classic example of people trying to get around those laws and say, well, if I can't build anywhere, I'll just put my house on a trailer. And you're still not allowed to live in it in most places. That's yeah. the ironic thing. And, uh, and people are fighting municipalities. And there's tiny things happening, but you can see it's not going easily for them, for the yeah. tiny house people. I mean, people putting on people's lands. At some point, somebody from the county is going to drop by and say, hey, there's somebody living here. Mm-hmm. They're not evil people, but they're just law enforcement people yeah. or code enforcement people. And they're saying you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Now, why that happens, there's a lot of, you know, then you get into more theory with what system yeah. do we live in and who financially benefits from that and uh, we don't need to go yeah. no, I know it just remind it was reminding me actually of it right after the fires and I had a client who they were moving and they were had their RV and they were looking for a place they needed to be here still for another month or two before taking off into the sunset for their retirement and they were trying to very hard to find a place to park their RV and many of the parks here have a rule that your RV has to be newer than 2010, 2010, oh yeah. something yeah. like that. I thought, yeah. and they, they're like, we have this beautiful yeah. RV that's very well maintained oh, that yeah. we're having trouble parking somewhere because of a rule like that. And it's, it was their housing. It's what they, they needed this housing until, you know, so it was interesting to see. It's like, who can afford a RV? that's newer than 2010, it definitely is an economic break, you know, breaking yeah. point there. And so the other way you can look at it is that the housing market or the housing and housing policies, etc., has not caught up with a new reality Yeah, that people now, you know, you know it's, it's, it sounds like an old person when you talk like this, but you know, at some point there was a reality that you could find a job and that job would give you access to some reasonable form of housing. Mm-hmm. And that that dynamic has been disturbed for, again, you, you talk about who caused that and what and how, mm-hmm. but that's the new reality now. Yeah. Also, people are a lot more mobile, like people move a lot more across the country or across different places. And yeah, the, 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 there's a new reality. Uh, but the housing regulations and codes and, and the financial system is still as if nothing has changed well slowly there's i know that uh in medford actually we have the new new wish because of, i think it's due to our population size here it's all of oregon but now they're allowing these uh cottage clusters they're called oh and so you can build a 900 square foot tiny home small home which is more than tiny actually yeah, that's a right you know 
and uh, you can build that on your lot. So if you have the right size lot, a big enough lot, you can add that okay. onto your like lot. Like an ADU? A -E -E yeah. yeah. ADU. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, additional dwelling unit. Yeah. And so they're starting to kind of, yeah, they're a little slow, right? I think it's, it's like we need housing and we need it now. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we're just now getting these things into place, some of them. But, yeah, we, we need more of that kind of thing faster. And not, I think, not just in places with a population size that Medford has. I mean, Grants Pass, I don't know if they qualify for that or not with the population size, but I mean, they need it too. Our rural properties yeah. need it. We have people that are work out there and, and trying to find housing is really difficult. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like, um, yeah. And then because it's all tied into property taxes and, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, uh, zoning laws are very complicated, especially yeah. in the, in the rural areas. Yeah. And I get that too. You don't want to come into a rural area and be throwing up all kinds of homes and farm exactly. areas. So there's that to be conscious of. It's a lot, lot to factor in. Yeah. But, but it can be done. Yeah, it can, can be, be done. done. And I think, sure. and, and of course, then there's a state level and the local level. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but that, that's the, and, and I think, which is, again, that is interesting of both the, the, no, the tiny house movement, also my movement. That things are getting so complex that people just do it and say, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I make a relatively low investment if I live in it for five years yeah. and I get busted or, right. you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm promoting that, but, but yeah. I think, I think a lot of, you know, it's like uh, the Rosa Park moving to the front of the bus kind of, mm -hmm. you know, obviously that was more influential than yeah. we're talking about a bigger issue there, but. At some point, just if if the laws or the system is kaput, yeah, then people just start doing things, and then you ask the system to catch up with okay. you. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's and that's the that's the that's the what the the system or the whatever in our case the code mm -hmm. and legislative uh, people have to realize is that more as this continues to drag on, more and more people will just do it, whatever yeah. that means. Living in a trailer, building a comp house, or living in a tiny home, um, or converting their garages into apartments, or whatever it is. Yeah. And that now, that, uh, when there's a certain mass of people doing that, they're, they're going to have to catch up and say, okay, <laughs> this is happening all over the place. Yeah. What are we going to do to make this okay and that not okay? Yeah. And that would be a good process to, for, for people to, to start thinking about. Yeah, to start mm -hmm. thinking about that. I think it would be very helpful. And it would bring a lot of creative ideas to the valley, I think. Yeah. But you were mentioning earlier that you are on a second edition of a book. You've written a, you've written one book, or maybe you're writing another. Tell me about the books you've yeah, written. Yeah, so, so I've written a book called House of Earth, which is available on Amazon. And it's essentially a textbook of my mm. workshops. But it's a little more than that. But basically everything I cover in my workshops is in there. I'm basically working on redoing the illustrations for that book. Mm. I originally had an uh, illustrator and it, it was fine. I somehow was not very happy about it. And I met another person actually in India. She's an architect. And that when I was working with her there, I looked at her drawing, which is stunned. So I'm working online with her now. Uh -huh. And we're at the final stage, probably in four or five weeks. Excellent. And so, um, but, but the, so people can buy that book 
it's more of a, it's a how-to. It's a how-to. Yeah, okay. it's a technical book, but written very simply and, and I think elegantly, or people like it. And then I want to work on another book, which is basically about the conversation that we're having here. here. Okay. And, and, and all the same questions that people have about earth and building, which is how about fires? How about rain? How about how much does it cost? How long does it take? And those questions are all very interesting because they have different layers of answers. How about the legality mm-hmm. of it and the maintenance? The, you, know, you asked mm-hmm. some of those questions already. And um, I want to try to write something where I answer those questions first, sort of with a primary answer. You know, yeah, if it, if it rains very hard, uh, sideways rains, you might have some damage on your exterior plaster. But then there are secondary answers to that. It's like, how, how come we don't build buildings with sufficient overhangs, even in our con- conventional building world, so that the buildings are more protected and the windows don't rot as easily and the, mm-hmm. and the siding and so forth. And then a third question, uh, the third level answer is like, what would it matter to do maintenance? Because putting a new little bit of plaster on it every five or 10 years would cost very little time and almost no money. And people think about maintenance, people think about scratching all paint off and, mm-hmm. and using chemicals and painting and the cost of that. But with earth and construction, it's... So so, yeah. so that's just a, the question of maintenance. And there's all these different layers uh-huh. to it that in the end, you end up in a new, a new paradigm of living and relating to your house. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with cost and it's the same with fire and it's this, all those things have these different layers of answers. So it will be it will be kind of a philosophical book about housing, not so much to talk people into building with earth, but more to have people in their mind turn a corner and look a different way at real estate mm-hmm. or housing or shelter mm-hmm. and those, uh, those kind of things. So that will be, and I love that I love that aspect of my building that it's a it's not it's, we're not swapping materials we're actually swapping mindsets or lifestyles or our culture even. And I think when people go online and they see cop buildings or they read about it, I think intuitively that's what they that's what they feel. That life would actually be significantly different if we would build this way. Mm. That's for for example, one of the reasons I think why more women than men are attracted to it is I think it's a more creative peaceful and accessible way of building for women as, as opposed to men. You know, if you have to carry four by eight sheets of something, yeah. you know, it leaves out large portions of the population, <laughs> including <laughs> myself. <laughs> yeah. And so earthen building can be uh, chopped up into little pieces that are much lighter and, and easier. So that too, the, the, uh, the, uh, as, as the building world has been dominated by males, earthen building and, and the whole natural building uh, world has a much stronger representation of females. Interesting. So, so life changes. Yeah. <laughs> well, but do you have the title for the book yet? Or are you still working you on it? No, that's actually my biggest struggle right okay. now. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to write it down. Yeah, I thought and about And put it in the show notes so that people, well, they've got your name. We're going to have your name and we'll have the other book. So people can yeah. kind of just keep checking. Yeah. <laughs> I want to use the word uh, mud hut in the title, but my girlfriend doesn't want any of it. <laughs> She's just, that's too negative. <laughs> so uh, my working title is, So You Want to Live in a Mud Hut. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> but it's going to be probably more something like earth and architecture oh, yeah. or, you know. Okay. <laughs> you probably won't attract as wide of a group of people with, so you want to live in a mud hut, because there's probably a lot of people that would instantly say, no. No, I don't. <laughs> Actually, I don't. Yeah, but that's the interesting thing about marketing, right? right. It is marketing, that, that, yeah. And this is something that I learned from a friend of mine, is when you... We, we, when we think about marketing, we tend to think that we want to go convince people to do something, but it's actually the opposite. You want to market to the people that are already on your side. Yeah. And so your audience, your audience. Who your audience yeah. Is, yeah. And so uh, I think uh, if I say, so you want to live in a mud hut, the people are already we're fantasizing about that. They will buy the book. <laughs> but the people that live, whatever, in East Medford and, and just bought their brand new house in housing development, yeah. they're not going to buy the book. <laughs> Even though I think they should, because I think we all should reconsider our relation to houses. It's yeah. interesting having an interview with a realtor. In uh huh. That, yeah, in it is. No, I didn't. And it's funny because I didn't think of it when asking you to be on the show and then in that relative way. But I also, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to vote on your girlfriend's side. <laughs> because people, somebody who might not otherwise have looked at it would might be intrigued, you know, yeah. an earthen home. And I think many of us probably have seen, myself included, earthen homes, especially some photos or whatever, that are really beautiful and you tend to think of mud hut, <laughs> right? It's like a one, think of like the cartoons or something. Yeah, yeah. You've got one uh, beehive yeah. looking thing and there's no windows. And so, of course, you're like, no, no, thank you. Yeah, we associate it with deep poverty in Africa or something. Yeah, and I, and I think that maybe on the second page or something, the first chapter, <laughs> oh, okay. you could call the first chapter, so you want to live in a mud Maybe what I could do is, this dilemma of the title, I can do an introduction. By, because really, that is, that is, yeah. the, that is the crux of, of uh, one, one, one of the issues that I talked about in the beginning of the interview, mm -hmm. is that we want to use these materials. We want to, we want to, I think for the world, it would be a fantastic thing if we sh would embrace this mm -hmm. style of building. It would be a game changer in so many ways. But we have to get rid of the stigma of that, right. is, that is associated with poverty or poorly functioning buildings or lack of space or mm -hmm. uh, any of those things. Yeah. You know, East Medford has clay, a lot of clay, oh, right? So it's like clay. a be so I just am already thinking, huh, we, we got that right over here. Oh, so much <laughs> but, clay, yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things about the, because I've done building projects on both sides of the I-5, because uh -huh. this pro program is about Southern Oregon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you go east of the I-5 and in parts of Medford, it, it's very dark black clay that is often referred to as black sticky stuff. And uh, there's people that live, uh, like uh, where I lived in, uh, by Lake Creek, you would walk in the winter when it was, the ground was really wet, you would walk on the clay. And by the time you reached your house, after a hundred yards, you would have six inches of clay underneath oh, your soles. stuck on your bottom They, they were stuck feet, on your, yeah. at the bottom of your feet. And then in the Applegate and the western part of the valley, it's more of a brownish, and light brownish clay mixed in uh, with quite a bit of sand and rocks mixed in, which is much better for building with uh, earth mm -hmm. than the eastern. But I've done both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just the black sticky stuff. It's such a strong clay that it's hard to mix it with the sand. 
Mm. So it's labor intensive. Yeah. So build your homes in the west side. <laughs> yeah, or, well, I had a project in the east side, and the guy said, well, I got this uh, black clay on my land, I want to build with it. And I said, you'd be 10 times better off just getting a truckload from somebody in the Applegate. Just find clay mm. in the Applegate and ship it over there. It'll, 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 cost, it'll, it'll cost you half the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he didn't do it. He was so it was the idea of getting a play from his land yeah, was beautiful sense. and more power to him. I mean, hey, if you have the time and the energy and that desire, then go for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But as you know, and I run into this all the time, that uh, people who want to build their own house, whether it's conventional or natural building, they always what's the expression? They bite off more than they can oh, chew. Oh yes. I actually have a little article. On my website, it's called Building a House with a Spouse. <laughs> because there's so many of these projects that end up in divorce. I was going to say. And financial ruins. Like people who are in a canoe or kayak together, a couple with their, their divorce boats. So yeah, yeah, yeah. a similar divorce house situation. Yeah. Inevitably, building a structure to live in is, is a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. It's a giant sculpture, lots of complications. And yeah. so... Um, you have to be. You have to be careful. Yeah, you have to be ready for it. You have to be ready for the adventure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for the path to not be a straight line. <laughs> exactly. From or, beginning to end. As a friend of mine always says, before we start a project, this is going to be twice the time and twice the cost. Yep. <laughs> and if you, <laughs> if you're, if you can still live with that, yeah, then go for it. But if you can't live with that, yeah, then you should be extra careful, I guess. Yeah. Or buy one already made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true, too. Yeah, but, uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think uh, from young kids on, we have a romantic idea around creating our own shelter or building our own house. There's something, and it, I mean, very few people end up doing it, but a lot of people love drawing on graph paper or organizing or becoming uh, amateur interior decorators or, yeah. you know, we're all just, we, uh, I think, uh, well, I wouldn't say everybody, but a, a third of the population is obsessed by these things. Yeah, well, it's home. It's yeah. where you spend the majority of your time. It's your sanctuary. It's your safe place. That's, you know, what, what a home in a shelter is meant to be. So yeah. that definitely makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And now you have the modern-day HD TV, what is it called? I don't watch it, but (laughs) (laughs) the same thing. You don't want to see how are people, what are they doing on the insides of their homes? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that that is definitely something people are doing. Well, when you are not working on Cobb Homes. I know you had said in your intro here that you mentioned playing music. What do you play and where do you so, play? I play folk music and I have a few interesting things going for me. <laughs> I think one is I play I play mostly uh, lower key songs. If I want to define myself, I would mention Bob Dylan, Paul Simon and Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of finger picking. The other thing I do is I play uh, harmonica at the same time. But I try to do that in a way that is more melodic, almost jazz 
jazz-like. Mm-hmm. So it's not not Bob Dylan uh, style harmonica, which sometimes is a little painful for the ears. I try to make that very beautiful, almost like a violin with the role of a violin uh-huh. in the background of music. Thirdly, I, I try to pay a lot of attention to the sound quality. It's one, it's one of my uh-huh. things that I have. I go somewhere and people play beautiful music, but then their speakers or the way they have them uh, pointed or the way they have their guitar amplified is so bad that I was like, gosh, you know, spend an extra $300 and you'll sound five times better. That's something I'm a little obsessed with. Yeah, but I play all kinds of other songs. Right now I'm practicing uh, a famous song called uh, A Wider Shade of Pale. Do you know that mm-hmm. one? Yeah. Yeah, and it has that organ part in it. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm working on doing that with the harmonica. Ah. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, it's coming together. Oh, and I was classically trained on the guitar. So another song I do is um, oh, Never Coming Back Again by Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, but that has an intricate guitar yes. part. Or the whole song is a, is a very complicated guitar part, so I'm working on that. So those kind of songs I like to challenge myself. Yeah. And, then, and I would say the other thing that I really enjoy doing is um, having a, a relation with the audience. And if, if, it's, if the right amount of... Uh, enthusiasm and with enough wine and <laughs> you know sometimes I also like to more go into sort of the American Pie repertoire and have mm-hmm. people sing along or have it be a more of a community event. Yeah. So it's kind of my spectrum is either either from like a more a contemplative uh, Paul Simon and Leonard Cohen songs to sing along songs. Yeah. And then something everything in between. Uh, but I don't do rock and roll. <laughs> I, I can't do. Uh, I, 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 I can't really do rock and roll very well. So, right. and you anything. saying you play at some of the vineyards around here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lately, I've been mostly playing at the Plaisance Winery. But I, I played at a couple other places too. I've been doing it for twenty years. Yeah, as I was telling you earlier, I haven't been marketing myself. I, I actually would like to play more. You know, one of the hardest things as a human is to promote yourself. <laughs> so much easier. I'll promote you right now. Okay, Anybody yeah. <laughs> looking for a musician, any of you vineyards out there, cafes, yeah. restaurants, Conrad is ready. I am ready. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much easier to promote other people. I, I find that I know. true. Yeah. 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 I have a friend who was an artist, a painter, and she was good at promoting herself. And she would actually do workshops for other painters on how to oh. sell your, or other, other you know, visual yeah. artists who make things that they yeah. just want to sell. But uh, there's ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as I said, I'm, I'm, I have the same thing with music. Like, there. <laughs> I, I, maybe you need to take her workshop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, hopefully, I'll get to hear you perform. I, I tend to get out to the vineyards music so yeah. one of these days That'd I hope nice. to be able to hear you because yeah. those are all all singer songwriters that I love and I've got I've seen all of, I've seen all of those people oh really okay yeah yeah, yeah. I have not I only seen Paul Simon I haven't seen yeah. the other ones yeah. yeah I haven't seen the Bob Dylan or uh, obviously Leonard Cohen uh, yeah. recently I got to see Leonard Cohen a couple of years before he died two or okay. three years he did a tour yeah. Very glad I got to see him. I have a friend who saw that, and she is in the music business, and I've seen thousands of concerts, and she, she said that was the most beautiful concert I've ever seen. Yeah, he, he's yeah. special, for sure. 
Yeah, his yeah. gratitude towards the audience. And, it uh, is. I, at one point, I mean, and he was... His spirit, yeah. You know, I don't know how old he was when he passed away, in his 80s, yeah. I think. Yeah. Anyway, he was down on one knee thanking the audience at yeah, one yeah. point. Yeah, his, his connection with the audience is special, for sure. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing all of this information. I really appreciate it. And I, I'm especially loving, even though I didn't go into it this way, but the whole housing and shelter piece of it, especially yeah, yeah. as it relates with me and my work and what I do and and just these different perspectives. And I do think it's important for us to be thinking outside, outside the box. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so too, outside the box. Yeah. So thank you for sharing all of that. And well, I'm listeners. I'm going to be putting show notes. You can have the, the title of the book and everything. And then your name will be in there, obviously. So that way people can find your new book, whatever the title might be. That's right. Or contact me for a, <laughs> a music contact, session. Yeah, there you go. Or contact me <laughs> for the music session. Exactly. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode and we'll see you all next week. This podcast is produced by Simona Fino and co-produced by James Dedakis and Jaded Media. Original music by Samuel Lawrence. 